Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the life and ministry of David. This morning we have another wonderful passage for our consideration. I'm going to read briefly from the end of 1 Samuel 23 to connect us to the story from last week, provide the context for this one. This morning our scripture reading, the main focus of our passage is 1 Samuel 24. Remember, beloved, remember, these are the very written words of God written for you and written for me. Starting with 1 Samuel 23, verse 26, the end of last week's story, Saul is getting closer to taking David out. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come. For the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi, a very providential escape for David. I think we can all agree. Remember, Saul is fixated. He is consumed with his desire to eliminate David as a threat. Saul was told by Samuel that the Lord was taking his kingdom from him. Saul was aware that the Lord had given it to David. And Saul was doing everything within his power from keeping that from happening. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold! David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Saul's spy network had informed him of this. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's royal robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to the men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, if you would have been at my house last weekend, you would have seen a lot, I mean a lot, of coverage of the royals. Anyone here tune in last week to see what was going on with respect to Queen Elizabeth II? If so, raise your hand. Not many Anglophiles in here. My wife is one. She loves all things British. Through her, I learned that what was happening last week is called, was called, the Platinum Jubilee for Queen Elizabeth II. Do you know what the Platinum 
Jubilee is. That marked 70 years of Queen Elizabeth serving as the monarch, serving on the throne over Britain. That is the longest in history, the most ever. Not only did we watch it, but Stephanie had to find a channel. I'm not sure how she find, found it, where they were doing color commentary like it was a sporting event of the various activities. Okay, the only time she really is short with me is if I interrupt her during this time. Well, of course, there were a number of cel celebrations. Um, and I was just imagining in my mind's eye what some of the royals were thinking during some of these activities as they had to stand for long periods of time and greet people and shake people's hand and things like that. And I was just imagining what Queen Elizabeth II was thinking. Maybe perhaps it was one of the first celebrations where she had to stand on like this balcony with Charles and William and Kate and whatnot. It seemed for like a long period of time and I was just imagining what she was thinking. She was probably just thinking, can we get this over with? You know what I mean? Just hi, hi. I'm ready to go back inside. Find out later that she has major trouble with her knees. Okay? And that she really doesn't like to do public events like that. So I'm sure she was thinking, can we get this over with? Or, or Kate. Okay? Her granddaughter-in-law. We all know what happened with Kate. You didn't have to watch it to see what happened, like, virally. What happened with Kate, William's wife, Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, and Kate's four-year-old son, Louis, did you see any of the clips of this? He was a total disaster, okay? <laughs> he put his hand on her mouth to shush her. He made faces at her. He turned around and high-fived people. Everything you should not do as a four-year-old royal, he was doing. You know, the thought bubble over Kate's head is like, I want to strangle this child. Can we get this over with? Then there's Charles, okay? What do you think would have been printed in the thought bubble over Charles's head during these things? I'm sure he's like, Mother, can we get, would you just give me the throne already, okay? <laughs> 70 years. Like, that's absurd. I was ready for this 20 years ago. Could you retire? I'm only going to enjoy the throne about three years before I have to give it to my son. Enough already. I want to be king. No doubt he was thinking that. You know he was thinking that. <laughs> well, I can imagine that that same kind of idea was running through the mind of David at various points. Keep in mind that it was years ago that David was anointed king by Samuel. David was not installed as king. He had been anointed as king, and he had to suffer through this interminable time of waiting for accession to the throne. I can imagine that David was thinking, enough already, Lord, please install me as king. Can we get this over with? And he would never have a better opportunity to make that happen than in our passage today. Let's see what David does and what David does not do. Okay, friends, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, like we learned last week, by his, you know, um, very intricate spy network, 
When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, if you have your Bible map out or you look in your Bible, the wilderness of En Gedi is just to the west of the middle of the Dead Sea, way south in southern Israel. It was a remote and desolate place. And that's where David and his men were forced to go. The wilderness of En Gedi. You can look at your Bible map. Verse 2. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And friends, I think this indicates that Saul is really upset. He is incredibly frustrated that he had David in his sights just days before. David's life was over. It was finished until he got called away at the very last moment to deal with the Philistines. Well, Saul is not going to let that happen again. Saul was going to do everything within his power to make sure he gets the job done this time. Notice what the text indicates. Look at verse 2. Saul takes 3,000, what does the Hebrew there say? Chosen men. David's men. We know that David had 600 men that were following him. Earlier in Samuel, we learned that these men were not the best and the brightest. They were, they were not the choicest men that Israel had to offer. David would take the outcasts and enfold them into his group. However, Saul recruited 3,000 of the best troops that Israel had to offer to hunt David. This would be like 3,000 army rangers and green berets. These were the elite of the elite in Israel, like the modern-day Mossad or something like that. This was the best of the best. He was going to make sure David was finished. Spies told him that David and his men were, quote, in front of the wild goat's rocks at En Gedi. You know, interestingly, fascinatingly, we know exactly where this is. And I would encourage you later to go on YouTube and Google the wilderness at En Gedi and the cave where David hid from Saul like where the wild goats' rocks are. We know exactly where that is. It is stunningly beautiful and is a frequent tourist destination for people who go to the Holy Land because these cliffs, these huge cliffs, these hills spring up right beside the Dead Sea. Okay? It is this desolate, barren area with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of caves buried in these livestone cliffs. Many of the caves would have more square footage than this room. There were massive natural caves there. There were small caves there. There were caves that were very narrow that would go way back and would have multiple chambers. The perfect place for David and his men to hide. Many of those caves would have more than enough room for David and 600 of his men. There's also a natural spring that forms a waterfall there. It is a gorgeous natural oasis. Water that would feed goats and livestock. And that's where David was. Because that's the only place where there was water. 
That's the only place there were all these natural spots to hide. That's why David was there. Verses 3 and 4. And he, David, came to the sheepfolds by the way. This was a known destination where people were water their, their sheep. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now we just got to get this on the table. This is a Hebrew idiom, okay? So for our kids, he was going to the bathroom, okay? That's what this means. The Hebrew literally means to cover one's feet. Now, it's possible that it could also be a Hebrew idiom for maybe taking a nap. It's more likely that it means, because like, why else would you let Saul go all by himself? Okay, normally he would have a retinue of soldiers protecting him, but even those guys would say, I think you need to go by yourself for this one. Okay, so Saul goes in to relieve himself, to go to the restroom, and of all of the caves, there may be a thousand caves in the wilderness of En Gedi, a thousand caves around these particular waterfalls. Where did Saul go? Saul goes in to relieve himself, second half of verse 3. Now David and his men, can you believe the providence of God? Of all of the caves. Now David, this is more remarkable than Dave sitting by Professor Rayburn. I'm sorry, Dave. It is, just a little more remarkable. That's right. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now this may seem shocking, but these caves could be so large and have such vast like tunnel system that David and his men could have seen Saul coming 3,000 men strong obviously David's spies would have known exactly where Saul was and so they chose this cave and they go into the recesses of the cave they probably have a, a guard or a post who's watching the front and lo and behold of all people it was Saul now how would the guard have known it was Saul his royal robe it was probably very hot. I'm not sure why he wore the royal robe everywhere he went. That would have been a little bit flamboyant and ostentatious. But Saul wore the royal robe even here. I would like to think he set it aside on a rock while he's doing his business, okay? The guard goes back and tells David, the king of Israel. Saul is actually here at the mouth of the cave taking a bathroom break in Incredible. Verse 4, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They're way back in there. They have this dialogue. They're reading God's providence. This is it. The Lord has served him up to us on a silver platter. Now, I will say, there is nowhere in the Bible that we have those words recorded where the Lord says to David, I will give your enemy into your hand and you can do what seems good to you to him. That's recorded nowhere. And even if it was somewhere, David knew, David knew, knew it certainly would not apply in this case. Do you know why it would not apply in this case? We'll wait and see. David's men were taking the promises of God and subtly twisting them to suit their purposes. And I think we can sympathize. I can certainly sympathize with David's men 
for trying to read God's providence and conclude that this is God's will, obviously. God is handing this man over to us. It's time to take him out. Who wouldn't feel that way if you were part of David's men? They were not saying, even though it's a beautiful oasis, it was not the Four Seasons. Their life was not easy. These men had lived with David on the run for years. They lived hand to mouth. They knew, everyone knew that David was God's anointed. Everyone knew what would happen if they took Saul out. It's likely that if they took Saul out and announced themselves to Saul's men, that Saul's men would have rallied around David. That's likely what would have happened. I think we can sympathize. They're like, can we just take a shortcut? The guy is right here. Let's do what we need to do. Providence doesn't get any clearer than this. Look at verse four and a half through five. Then David, probably responding to them to some degree, David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So we should imagine in our mind's eye, David is doing, I mean, Saul's doing what Saul needs to do. And he has laid out this long regal robe, okay, that's probably a number of feet away from him. The cave, no doubt, was very dark. And David sneaks up so quietly and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5. Interesting. This is so interesting. What do you make of this? And afterward, afterward David's heart struck him. That means David felt guilty. David felt contrition. David felt what we might call conviction of sin for doing this because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Why do you think that was? What's your best guess? He hadn't laid a hand on David. He hadn't threatened David physically. What was wrong with that? Well, as we'll come to find out, that was not a benign action, cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. Cutting off the corner of someone's robe or tearing someone's robe was very symbolic. If you think back just a few chapters, when Samuel confronted Saul, when Samuel told Saul that God has rejected you and he's taken the kingdom from you and Saul lashes out at Samuel, what happens to Saul's robe at that point? Saul's robe tears. What is Samuel's interpretation of Saul's robe tearing? Samuel interprets that and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you and given it to another. So David, cutting off a corner of Saul's robe, would send a message. The kingdom is being torn away from you, obviously, and being given to me. Not a benign, not a benign message by any stretch. Okay, so after feeling those pangs of conscience, okay, that, um, that he's not to touch God's anointed, okay, or even, or even cut off a corner of his robe. Like, so if he feels conviction and guilt about cutting off a corner of Saul's robe, he is certainly not going to allow his men to kill Saul. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. David feels conviction of sin. How could I do this? The disrespect that I just conveyed to Saul. He said to his men, 
Yahweh forbid. Yahweh forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now, our English translations do not do a good job translating that word persuade. He persuaded his men to stand down. The Hebrew verb there is to tear up. Many commentators speculate that this was a very intense and passionate exchange, that David is having to get in the face of his men and tear them up, as it were, and get in their faces and say, stand down. You aren't to lay a finger on this man's head. You stand down, he is free to go, and they are incensed. But David is holding his ground. You may not touch God's anointed, which was a huge risk for David for all kinds of reasons. Now, recently I've been reading a good book, at least a book that I think is pretty good. I don't know that it's the most well-written book that I've ever read. It's written by a former athlete named Grant Hill, who was a, a, a wonderful basketball player back in my day. He played for Duke University and led Duke to its first two national championships. He was a consensus All-American. An argument could be made that he was the single best athlete, even considering Zion Williamson, perhaps. I know that's offensive to people. But that Grant Hill may be the best athlete to have ever played for Duke. He went on to a pretty successful NBA career, and so now he's writing his autobiography. And he talks about getting drafted third into the NBA professional basketball. He gets drafted by, does anybody know? Any sports fans? Who does he get drafted by? Trivia question. The Detroit. Who said that? Of course, one of the Cooper children. Very good. Gold star for you. I'm sure you know your Bible just as well. Absolutely. <laughs> He's drafted third by the Detroit Pistons. His second year, they get a new coach, Doug Collins, who they say is one of the best tacticians in NBA history. Well, in addition to being a great tactician, he was also very, very combative, fiery, mercurial. He could light into the people of his team. Midway through the year, his center, Otis Thorpe, is having a very hard time with Dennis Rodman, if you ever remember kind of crazy Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman was having his way with Otis Thorpe, and Doug Collins yanks this veteran center out of the game and publicly humiliates him in front of the team. And Grant Hill, who was very impressionable at that point, said that night the coach lost Otis Thorpe and then he lost the team. It was a disaster the rest of the year. Leaders have to be very careful. It's very easy to lose your team, to lose your staff. In allowing Saul to leave, David risked losing his men. These men were sacrificing everything for him. These men, they probably had families they wanted to go back to. Here was their chance. They could have been thinking, David, you are more concerned about Saul than you are about us. But David held the line. David had great courage. 
in protecting the life of Saul. Do you know why he did? Why would David do this? Those of you who know your Bible would know that Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight says, do not curse God, do not curse God, and do not curse the ruler of your people. So if you're not to curse the ruler of your people, if that's sin, how much more true is it that you shouldn't kill the ruler of your people? In fact, when um, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts kind of like um, insults the high priest, and then the people tell uh, Saul, you just insulted the high priest, Saul quotes this verse, even though the high priest was incredibly spiritually bankrupt. You're not to curse God, you're not to curse the ruler of your people. David was very convicted that he had gone too far in cutting off Saul's robe. And he certainly wasn't going to take Saul's life. In, God's, in David's mind, that was God's job, not his. Okay, now let's just take a breath. What do we learn from this? Lots of things we learn from this. One thing we learn from this is that we need to be very careful about reading providence. Let me repeat that. We've got to be very careful about reading the providence of God, okay? The Lord has given us wisdom in this era of covenant history, redemptive history, to make decisions, okay? We don't have the benefit today of an ephod. Do you remember last week, for those who were here, the ephod, E-P-H-O-D, an ephod was a garment of the high priest, and through that garment, the priest could inquire from God, uh, give a petition, give a question, and God would give the answer. Do you remember last week? David saves the city called what? Do you remember? Keliah. And then David asks Abiathar the priest to inquire of the Lord, is Saul going to come down here and come after me? Do you remember what was the answer? For those of you who are here, come on, drink your coffee. What was the answer? Yes, Saul will come down. Is that the only question that David asked? No. David followed it up. Will the people of Keliah hand me over to, to Saul? If Saul comes down, what was the answer? Yes, he will. Sadly, we'll ask the Lord in heaven one day, we don't have an ephod anymore. We don't have access to specific answers regarding the secret will of God. Okay, um, whether or not you should buy this house or that house, you should marry this person or that person. Huge decisions with a lot on the line. The Lord is not going to specifically answer your question in the same way that he did for David. So let's go back to Dave's illustration. It did seem like God's providence was rolling out the red carpet, okay? But what if in his conversation with this amazing professor that he would have discerned that the seminary was going in a hugely liberal direction? Then David, Dave would have showed wisdom and not gone down that path, okay? Sometimes providence seems obvious, okay? But we have to be careful not to read providence and try to infer what we think God might be communicating in a given situation. That can be very dangerous. 
For example, let's say I've got a, I've got a rising senior in my house, okay? And, um, you know, as you apply for college and whatnot, and you, you typically apply for schools that, you know, you think you have a good chance of getting into. And then oftentimes, what do you also do? You might apply to what's called a, maybe a reach school, okay? And let's assume a student applies for like a massive reach school. Like a school like where it's incredibly improbable that you could ever get into. And let's say amazingly, you get into it. Often, oftentimes people might infer from that what? Oh, it's obvious. This was so improbable that this must be what? God telling me to go. But that is not the case. God calls his people in this era of redemptive history to make decisions based on biblical principles. God calls us to make decisions based on wisdom derived from God's word. As a professor told me in seminary, one of the best things I ever heard in seminary that was so helpful along these lines, God's will is not a dot to find, but a framework within which to work. Let me repeat that. God's will is not a dot to find. If you're kind of going to sleep, let's reel you back in with that question. It's not a dot to find. Like, you can't know what's coming tomorrow. You can't know how this job's going to work out. All we can do is make the wisest decision possible in light of the character of God, and you leave the results to him. And so the peace of God that transcends all understanding does not flow from the fact that you've made the right decision. The peace of God that transcends all understanding comes from the fact that your life is in his hands. And so we make decisions according to the principles of God's word and we leave the results to him. And you know what? We may choose a job that is unbelievably difficult, incredibly difficult, more difficult than the job we didn't take. Do you think that was a mistake? You think that that was outside of God's design? No, God can use those things and does use those things to sanctify us and grow us. To David's men, Saul's presence in the cave, the improbability of that, their situation, they viewed it as automatic. David, this is the day the Lord has made. The Lord has told you to do what seems good to you. It's obvious, but that wasn't right. That was not what David and his men were to do. I'll say one more thing from verses 1 and 7 that's very convicting to me. Notice how tender David's conscience is. Notice how immediate he felt conviction and how tender his conscience was. He didn't lift his hand against Saul. All he did was cut off a corner of Saul's robe, but he knew the message that communicated, felt terribly convicted, felt great contrition. You know, that's something that we should all pray for. How do we develop that? Just so very briefly, how do we develop a tender, sensitive, responsive conscience? Okay, everybody's born with a conscience, right? Everybody's born with a sense of right and wrong. Everybody feels guilty. You know, unbelievers, due to common grace, can feel guilty, can feel remorse, can feel contrition. But the Holy Spirit shapes the conscience of believers in ways that's not at work in the general population. 
How do we sensitize our conscience? How do we grow it? By reading God's word, and I would also say, by praying. Holy Spirit, will you make my conscience tender and sensitive? Would you remind me quickly, you know, when I have sinned against you, when I've gossiped against someone, you know, small sins, white lies, small justifications, small shortcuts lead oftentimes to much greater ones. Lord, have mercy on our souls. Give us a tender conscience. Join me in praying that the Holy Spirit would give you and me a tender conscience. Okay, now go to panel five. Last week, a member of my family told Stephanie he's going two minutes too long. Well, buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> but we, it's good. It's good, friends. This is good stuff. I'm not going to belabor it, but it's so good. Panel 5, 1 Samuel 24, 8 through 22. Verse 8, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. Wait, what? You're doing what? The goal is to hide from him. Wait, wait, you're, you're, you're like getting his attention? You have 3,000 Green Beret army rangers up there waiting to kill us. Like, can you imagine David's men saying, are you insane? Why are you going out and getting his attention? David says, my lord, the king. Saul looked behind him. David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know for certain and see with your own eyes that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. I'm not listening to your men. You shouldn't listen to your men, Saul, who say I'm a threat. Verse 12, may the Lord, Yahweh, judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of wicked comes Wickedness. In other words, Saul, if I was wicked, if I wanted to kill you, if I wanted to take your throne like this, I would have done it. It would have been all too easy, but I'm not wicked, so I didn't. Second half of verse 13, but my hand, my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea? I've got 600 whatever these guys are. You've got 3,000 green beret. You know, I don't even warrant your attention. Verse 15, may the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. In other words, may the Lord judge between me and you, Saul. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to take a shortcut to sitting on the throne. I'm leaving that with the Lord. Verses 16 through 22, the end of the story. As soon as David finished speaking these words, like what's Saul going to do? 
Saul has the capacity. I know I told you last week, and it is true, that in other situations, David could have killed Saul. David was the much better warrior, but this time, no chance. 3,000 of the very best troops in Israel. David and his motley crew, no chance here. What's Saul going to do? We know Saul is very unpredictable. Saul, in many ways, is out of his mind, irrational, illogical. Saul could have easily summoned all of them and put it into this. Saul says to David, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy... Will he let him go away safe? Like, obviously not. That is not the way that things normally go. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Just a little last-minute negotiation Saul is making here. Very common in the ancient Near East when a new king assumed the throne, one of the first orders of business was to wipe out the family of the man who had been king before you so that there were no competitors to the throne. That's what typically happened, and Saul is like suing for peace to ensure the welfare of his family, David agrees in grace and mercy. David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. I'll just say this. There are two examples of here of very risky and costly obedience on David's part. The first time is saving Saul, allowing his mortal enemy to go free and risk losing his men? Can you imagine the temptation to take the shortcut? He's there. We can see him. This is over. His men may not even know what happened to him. Think of the temptation to take a shortcut to sit on the throne. David would not do it. I guarantee you that was tempting beyond our wildest imagination. And secondly... David goes out to try to make peace with Saul. Romans 12, 18 says, insofar as it depends on you. What does it say? Y'all finish it. Insofar as it depends on you, what? Live at peace with all men. Do you understand the risk that David took walking out of the mouth of that cave and trying to engage in a constructive dialogue with a person who had lost his mind? And yet David was doing everything possible to heap burning coals on Saul's head. That's like a metaphor for trying to promote a spirit of, of conviction and guilt in Saul's heart. David was doing everything he could to make peace. Amazing the power of the temptation to take a shortcut. Like, I have a list here of all kinds of shortcuts, but I don't want to trivialize it. There are so many shortcuts that we are faced with every day. 
okay? Shortcuts where we're quite certain we'd never be discovered. You know, temptations in the office to use, I'm serious, to use the church credit card to just kind of justify a ministerial expense. You better know that that's a temptation for all church workers. It's so easy, so easy. No one would ever know you could easily just justify a small expenditure. Or in your life, just a small compromise at work. A little shortcut to get where you need to go. Borrowing someone's work. Cheating in school. You fill in the blank. We are tempted every day by a number of shortcuts to get where we want to go. That is not what David did. That's not what David's greater son did. We'll end with this. Jesus was tempted with these kinds of shortcuts at every turn. Remember when Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain? Do you remember the temptation that he put before Jesus? You know your Bibles. If you don't think this was a massive temptation, you are sorely mistaken. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Small thing, Jesus, if you just bow down before me, all of this will be yours. All the more tempting to the God who gave up the prerogatives of kingship to serve you and me. The temptation to take a shortcut, to shortcut the cross and sit on the throne and enjoy the crown would have been incredibly tempting for Jesus. Or Jesus in Gethsemane, the soldiers come. You know, what does Peter do? He gets, off his, gets out his sword. He cuts off the ear of the high priest's ear. Do you remember his name? Little trivia question, extra bonus. What was his name? Anybody know? Malchus. He cuts off Malchus's ear. What does Jesus do? He rebukes Peter. He said, put up your sword. Do you remember what he said to Peter after this? He said, Peter, do you not know? Do you not think? that I could call down 12 legions of angels at any moment to stop this? Do you know how many angels that is? That's over 70,000 angels. Do you know why Jesus did not call down those angels? Jesus said, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way? No shortcuts for David. No shortcuts for David, great, David's greater son. The Bible tells us no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. In other words, you're not tempted. I'm not tempted by anything that's, that's unusual or beyond the ordinary that all of us get tempted with. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So if we give in to sin... When, not if, when David gives in to sin, it's not because I was unable to stand up under it. It's because I chose not to stand up under it. The Bible says God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Beloved, as we face temptations of various kinds, we should not only look to David, we should look to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his grace and mercy and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that really will, really will help us in our time of need. That is a wonderful thing. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for David's courage. We thank you for David's obedience. We thank you even more for Jesus Christ's 
courage and his obedience in everything, in every thought, word, and deed, because the scriptures must be fulfilled. The plan to deliver us, we thank you that Jesus did not take any shortcuts to deliver his wonderful people. Lord, give us strength. Give us resolve to pray for a tender conscience. Give us the grace to seek your help during our times of need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.